Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. So, let's begin. Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, this week I have a few things to talk about. I'm going to report on the fire on the container ship off the coast of Canada. I'm going to also talk about electric vehicle development and how that might change the emission situation. I also want to take a look at transaction cost economics very briefly and about friction and how frictionless trade is important for supply chains and for global trade. And we'll have a little conversation about how Ronald Coase and, of course, Oliver Williamson influenced those discussions at policy level. I also want to talk a little bit about plastic waste and how that's not going to go away anytime soon with all the plastic bottles being consumed all over the globe and just being left to rot rather than being recycled. All the recycling promises over plastic bottles don't seem to happen. So plastic waste is a real problem. Best way to solve it, don't use plastic for bottles. And I want to talk a little bit about options for switching freight from roads to rail and why that's a sensible solution when it's possible. Okay, so let's get started. A few days ago, there was a fire on a container ship off the coast of uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And the Canadian Coast Guard said on Monday that there were pockets of flame still on the deck of, of the motor vessel Zim Kingston. And some containers have internal fires. Some of those containers are carrying hazardous chemicals, so that might be a problem. And stormy weather is causing problems with the cleanup. It's always a difficult job when things go wrong on a container ship. Some of the containers have fallen off the ship as a result of the damage being caused by the fire. And that's problematic too. When things go wrong on ships, it can often be serious. One of the major challenges on this particular vessel is the potassium amylixanthate. It has the potential on meeting water to react 
and become a form of flammable gas. The chemical on its own is corrosive and an irritant, which might cause problems for marine mammals too. These mammals are immersed in water, so anything they come into contact with comes into contact with their eyes and their respiratory tract. So it's a serious issue for sea life. And obviously, people are concerned. In Canada, it's the responsibility of the vessel owner to clean up the mess if something goes wrong. And so if there's pollution, it's down to the owner. About 40 containers that have come from that ship are said to be floating around the west coast of Vancouver Island. And so that's an issue too. And it's how to get those containers under control and back so they don't cause any further problems. So we'll have to keep watch to see how that position plays out. But we wish them well. There are 90 million freight vehicles on the roads of major cities in the world, and almost all are diesel-powered, producing 5% of global CO2 emissions, according to Wired magazine. Medium-class vans, such as the Ford Transit, make up the bulk of these vehicles, and about 28 million sold worldwide. Traditional vehicle manufacturers have built cars, trucks and buses at scale for over a century to lower cost. The future requires a different business model. Steve Spurdlow is the CEO of Arrival, and he argues that electric vehicles have to sell at the same price as their fossil fuel equivalents if you're going to persuade commercial vehicle buyers to buy them. At present... Electric vehicles produce higher CO2 emissions in production than petrol or diesel vehicles, mainly because of the battery packs needed to power them. So it's not all green and clean in the production process. Spurdlow, with Arrival, is reimagining the vehicle factory of the future. And production has started in its micro factory in a warehouse in Banbury, Oxfordshire, in the United Kingdom. There are no production lines, such that you find in a normal car factory it's not the Ford line model. And nothing about the operation is normal, in that sense. Rather, it's a smart factory. Spurdlow's vision for his vehicles is that they're devices with wheels. This way he considers the vehicles as something to be programmed with software delivered through Wi-Fi. In traditional car builds, the heaviest parts of the vehicle are steel fabrication, which are CO2-heavy in production. Arrivals vehicles are much lighter, and the steel, which forms most of the weight, 
has been removed, meaning it will use less energy in production and in use. And it will be manufactured, losing at least half, if not more, of the CO2 emissions in the production process. Aluminium was used for the heavy steel parts, and the steel panels have been replaced by moulded thermoplastic wrapped, a round fibreglass cloth, making the vehicle light but robust, enough for the heavyweights the vehicles will carry. The thermoplastic material does not scratch or dent, and you don't need to paint it. Arrival has three vehicles it's planning to produce, which are a van, a bus and a car. Tom Elvidge is the head of vehicle programs and senior vice president at Arrival, and he says they've been working on these three vehicles for about five years. This is some achievement given that the company is only a 2015 starter. So we wish them well. And I think this is the future of transportation. Train, freight train, going so fast. Well, apologies to Elizabeth Carton, who wrote that great song, all about a freight train. Freight trains still have a part to play in any logistics plan where you're moving goods over great distances. They're a relatively low-cost way to move goods in volume, and especially if you've got hazardous goods, you get them off the roads. But obviously, people need to plan to move goods using a mixture of different modes of transport. But the freight train should not be forgotten in this plan. And I think there's a case for using more trains to shift volumes over distance. And I'm going to try and speak about that here right now. On short distances it can of course be expensive, so you'd have to be thinking about different forms of transport over shorter distances. Over longer distances with large volumes and moving things from a port where there's a rail link, it makes good sense. Rail freight is reliable, it's fast, it can be cost-effective, it's got environmental benefits, you can improve the air quality, it doesn't have the same CO2 emissions as trucks using diesel to shift large volumes. It reduces congestion on the highways and it's got better safety and a better track record for that than perhaps truck freight. And so... For anything in bulk or hazardous material, it's probably a really good option.
it comes to rail freight, about 28% is carried in the United States by rail. In the United Kingdom, it's just 10%. Moving goods to the value of about £30 billion every year. It makes economic sense if the journeys are over 150 miles or more. And certainly with the current shortage of HGV drivers, an article in the Eye in the UK said that uh, one rail driver had indicated he was worth 34 HGV drivers, meaning that that was the equivalent freight carried by the rail system. One of the problems, of course, still with rail is that a lot of rail freight is carried by diesel engines, diesel-powered engines, and diesel is quite an expensive fuel. It's sold to the rail companies by network rail and they're charging quite high prices apparently prices have gone up by 210% most ports in the UK are connected to rail terminals and that's the good news about 38 freight trains run in and out of Felixstowe each day but strangely Felixstowe is a single track entry and exit point. Both Asda and Tesco in the United Kingdom use rail freight to carry a substantial part of their goods. In fact, Tesco is expanding the use of trains by about 40% this year. Direct Rail Services has a fleet of 100 locomotives and moves 140,000 containers in a year. It was founded in 1994 to carry nuclear fuel and waste, but it's diversified into carrying all kinds of goods, even though it remains publicly owned. Many of these rail freight carriers run at night to avoid network congestion and rail is part of the solution it may not be a total solution it's integrated with truck transport and there are systems to move containers directly from truck to train and there's some technology currently being developed that should be able to do that without the use of cranes which sounds a very good, efficient solution. It takes time out of the system. One report I read mentioned that Tesco's depot in Barking, East London, received about five trains each day loaded with fruit, vegetables and other goods from Valencia in Spain. Some freight trains in the United States run by a General Electric diesel, have the power to haul the equivalent of 170 jumbo jets. That's some power. In Australia, trains can have eight locomotives and 682 wagons. 100,000 tonnes travel 170 miles with a single driver. 
It's a tremendous economy of scale when you think about it. Trains really do kill distance. The world's first battery electric freight train was unveiled in the United States just recently. A locomotive fueled by hydro-treated vegetable oil also went on display at the show in Glasgow Central Station, just ahead of the COP26 climate summit. There are certainly environmental benefits to these developments, and the potential is great. But as I say, it's part of a solution and not a total solution. But we should be using more rail freight to move goods around, particularly heavy goods across distances and particularly hazardous goods. been hearing for months about some of the problems in supply chains, particularly with shortages and also with the additional bureaucracy and the administrative costs that have increased since the United Kingdom left the European Union. And that was always going to be an issue. So The vote to leave campaign talked about all the benefits, but it overlooked one of the biggest drawbacks in the whole arrangement, which is that we've increased significantly transaction costs. And the equations with regard to transaction cost economics have shifted considerably since Brexit. I've mentioned in previous podcasts the administrative costs for just very small consignments, perhaps a very low value, maybe twenty, thirty pounds, the equivalent of forty, fifty dollars, incurring costs of a hundred and fifty pounds in transaction costs. And that's not the added time that's involved in the checks at the borders. That's simply the paperwork cost, the administrative cost. Transaction costs, of course, are notable in economics. And Oliver Williamson received a Nobel Prize for his work on transaction costs. These transaction costs are what friction is to the physical sciences. So we have friction in supply chains. And once you have friction, that friction incurs a positive cost. In lots of the economics literature, it was assumed that You simply traded and there were zero costs in the transaction. But the truth of the matter is there's far from zero costs in most transactions and in supply chains, that's a major problem. Williamson's work was inspired by another 
Nobel laureate Ronald Coase, who had a long-term commitment for examining the cost of transactions and how it impacted other parts of the system. And he particularly looked at the, the impact of pollution. And when we think about pollution and contamination from that point of view, often the cost or the transaction cost wasn't borne by the polluter. It was borne by other parties who were the recipients of that pollution. A bit like the plastic bottle situation now, when we have large companies creating the product and distributing that liquid product in a plastic bottle container, which we know roughly about 80% of those plastic bottles end up in some form of landfill. There is an opportunity to recycle some of that material, especially if it's made from what we call the PET type of plastic, the clear plastic that's easily reprocessed, but there just aren't enough reprocessing plants and they're not in the right places. And so you end up with countries like the Philippines having lots and lots of plastic bottles discarded. And it's somewhat irresponsible of these big producers not to take care of the product. Many of them claim that they're going to. The soft drinks industry produces about 470 billion bottles every year. And they're just used one time and disposed of. They're not recycled, they're just thrown away. According to a BBC TV Panorama programme, a quarter of those bottles are made by just one company, Coca-Cola. And half of those bottles end up dumped, burned or just thrown away. Coca-Cola could certainly learn from its own past to do things better. Certainly in the 1950s, 1960s, they had these glass bottles which they collected, washed and reused. And they gave people two cents in America to return those bottles back to Coca-Cola for that purpose. So why can't this be done today? Well, the main reason is once you have single-use packaging that you're not responsible for in terms of having to incur cost to collect, wash and reuse that particular container, but you can simply pass that cost on to somebody else, you've moved your friction and your cost and your loss away from your organisation, onto somebody else. And usually it's where those bottles end up. It's those people that end up paying the price. So essentially what you've just done is externalise your cost and retained more of the profit inside the company for distribution to the shareholders. 
Coca-Cola, of course, sells its drinks in all the countries in the world and it makes about £20 billion in profit each year. Coca-Cola have made a pledge to have a world without waste and they say that they'll have all uh, plastic bottles recyclable by 2030. But that's a real tall order and it remains to be seen if that target will be reached. All the evidence so far shows that it will fall substantially short. But it would be great if they could. Plastic packaging is a real problem in supply chains. And it's something I think that consumers will become far less tolerant of as we move towards a situation in a world where we expect climate and conditions to improve and not deteriorate. We don't want polluted rivers, we don't want polluted land, we don't want waste. In other words, we want to avoid that waste. And there are ways to do that, but it will cost. But it's possible. So let's do it. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Chain Reaction, all about supply chain advantage, written and presented by Tony Hines.